Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Mr. Hill, it's me. You? Look, sugar, I'm busy trying to find the next big hit of 1952. I got no time to listen to the stuff you write. But my songs are beautiful. I got this new one, More Love Than the Love You Dreamed When You Dreamed of Love. Baby, what do you think this is, Europe? You can't sell a song like that. Give me something like that new Frankie Lawrence hit. Put some parsley in your pants. Put some parsley in your pants. I can feel it when we dance. Bada bada bum 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 bada bum bum bum. That's not me, Mr. Hill. I'm part of an apostolic succession of songwriters. Do you know what Jerome Kern once said to me? Ah, uh, what, what? I don't believe we've been introduced. Jerome Kern said that to me. Oh, fetch my smelling salts. Sugar, nobody cares anymore. People want fun. They want a song like Zing Zing Zoom Zoom. Who left a vacuum in the powder room? Peggy Sanders sold a million records with that tune last year. Would you at least listen to my newest song? After all, you're all that always all encompassed me for always and forever. Uh, just from the title, I need a bromo. Alice, bromo. Bromo, Alice. What were we talking about? My songs. Great. Let's talk about something else. How about that Stan Musial? What about him? I don't know. I don't follow baseball. Look, baby, I don't mean to rush you, but out in the waiting room, I got the two guys who wrote My Combo Plays Mambo and our hit is Namba Wombo. Come back and see me when you're out of the hearts and violins business. Maybe he's right. I need to be more commercial, but I can't forget what Jerome Kern said to me. I don't believe we've been introduced. Wait, that could be a song. I don't believe we've been introduced, but you're as memorable as Proust. I've got to work on this. You listen to our show about popular music. And now the man who wrote How Much Is That Window in Front of the Doggy, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that was a later vinyl replacement window kind of follow-up tune. Uh, so... Uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about the entire history of popular music here in 49 minutes. It shouldn't be a problem. We should be able to do this. And uh, our inspiration for doing this this is a book called The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song by Ben Yagoda. He's joining us right now from WHYY in Philadelphia. In the studio is our music guy, Steve Metcalf, administrator, critic, arts consultant, composer, and, of course, uh, writes the weekly Metcalf on Music blog for WNPR.org. Or I could go on. He does many other things as well. Tracy Moore joins us. She's new to me. I'm very excited. She's an actress, a singer, a teacher. Are we allowed to mention that you're the voice of, you have been the voice of Sailor Moon? No, actually, that's not me. That is another Tracy Moore. That's a different Tracy Moore? A different Tracy Moore. There's two Tracy Moores who sing? There are three. There's three. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. All right. So she's an uh, associate professor of theater at the University of Hartford's Hart School and the author of Acting the Song, Performing Skills for the Musical Theater. Um, Where to begin? Oh, first of all, before I do anything else, I have to say that Ben Yagoda's appearance today... um, touches off or launches us on a week-long, unintentional, systemic pilfering of Mike Pesca's show, The Gist, because uh, Ben appears regularly on The Gist. Mike Pesca himself will be on for the full hour with us uh, next week for a vexillology show, a show about flags, which is something Mike's very interested in. Uh, who else? Oh, uh, Emily Yaffe is also going to be on with us for a show about advice. Um, so we're just basically robbing The Gist, uh, but uh, we're robbing the people that we admire a lot, especially Ben Yagoda. So 
Ben, you go to let's begin with th- this book is a really fascinating anecdote filled uh, history of American popular music with just all the kinds of people that I've been fascinated by all my life. Um, but it sort of asks a question that we ask over and over again, uh, you know, which is sort of what happened to American music? And we assume that some particular thing happened. Uh, my uh, example of it for today is that if you Google the, the song Show Me, you don't get for your first you know, group of hits, you don't actually get, you know, don't talk of love lasting through time. You get something by somebody named Kid Ink who does it with Chris Brown. And it, ble- it, it is so emphatically not that song. So um, so so there you have it. You have this kind of divided. It's one of the things that you're sort of looking at is what happened as this uh, incredible movement of the Great American Songbook kind of began to tap its brakes around 1950. Uh, and and you, you pose an interesting theory, which is that it wasn't that rock and roll just came roaring in and drove it out, that it, the rock and roll came into a kind of silence, right? Silence might be uh, a bit strong for a word, but first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I, and I love the, uh, I don't know, what would you call it, that, that mini, mini drama that right. started it off. Uh, it's brilliant. So uh, fantastic. Um, yeah, the silence. Well, uh, in 1952, you set the scene in uh, as an appropriate year. It wasn't so much it was that it was silence, but that the airwaves were filled with kind of the opposite of silence. Um, now, was forgive me, I don't know. Was every single of those one of those songs you mentioned a real song? Or? No, they were all made up. No, all, all made up. up. Oh, well, you know, it, the real ones were, you know. Mambo Italiano, come on to my house, feed up, pat him on the popo. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. Uh, all, if not most of those, written by one man, Mr. Bob Merrill. Um, the, you, 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 uh, and the, the melody was as simplistic as the lyric, uh, you, you, you. Um, all these songs were coming to the top of the, the airwaves. And um, people like Arthur Schwartz, uh, who wrote uh, More Love Than Your Love, and one of the opening scenes in my book sh- has him trying to pedal that song to the most powerful man in pop music, uh, Mitch Miller. Long before his sing-along with Mitch days, he was the head of A&R Columbia Records, met with complete failure. And truth to tell, it, it's not a, a, the greatest song it, ever written. In fact, in fact that, Ben, we can, we can illustrate that for everybody. <laughs> uh, let's hear a little bit of the... Uh, this is, there's, we have two versions of More Love Than Your Love available. This is the one from the Broadway musical that came to be. Okay, probably under the best of circumstances, it's not going to be a timeless, deathless right. uh, piece of music. And and the old-fashioned vocal st- vocal stylings kind of pile on a bit. But and that was another factor. I mean, um, a lot of things were going on, and, and one of them was that people like Arthur Schwartz, who was a you know pillar of the Great American Songbook to mix metaphors, were uh, hitting a creative dry spell. Only the very top of people at the top of the game, the Rogers and Hammersteins. Uh, Cole Porter, uh, Frank Lesser were, 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 were doing top-notch work. A lot of the others found themselves both creatively and commercially in dry spells. 
So we lots of different. Yeah, go ahead. Well, we started our story kind of in the middle, and it probably makes sense as you do in your book, Ben. You go to to go back and say, well, what was this thing, this juggernaut that somehow or other was running out of gas, or it hit it hit sort of a dry spell, or was being supplanted and dishonored in favor of some of this more almost kind of novelty music. Uh, so uh, now it's time to bring in our other guests in the studio uh, and, and talk a little bit about sort of what was that American songbook, Steve Metcalf. I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, in a way, it really is, as we've sort of said in the past, um, it's it's five titans. Uh, it's it's Jerome Kern, it's Cole Porter, uh, it's Gershwin, it's Berlin, it's uh, Richard Rogers. Um, it's the, these, and actually Ben Arlen. cites the, yeah, but ben, ben, you cite the same five giants, followed up by Harold Arlen and Vernon Duke and like a whole bunch of other people who came later. Um, and so... Steve Metcalf, give us, give me your thought. What's what's coming together at that moment? Ben sort of poses a series of confluences that that create this this moment where this this sort of unbelievable body of work gets created. Well, uh, you know, it's obviously a lot of different things, but I think in in the main, it is the sort of confluence of the mostly Jewish four out of the five titans that you mentioned. Uh, had a Jewish, Russian, or Eastern European background with uh, the emerging jazz sensibility. I mean, uh, Gershwin, I think, maybe embodied that more than the others. But uh, but but you have in the late teens and then in the twenties this this sort of confluence of of, of influences that I think did create a, a, a kind of a sound world, if you will that was just simply different from what we'd had in the early days of the 20th century and even into the teens. In fact, some people, as I'm sure Ben knows, and maybe maybe it's referenced somewhere in, in the book, that uh, Kern's song, They Didn't Believe Me, is sometimes cited as the sort of first quintessentially American standard. You know, it was a, it was a straight-ahead 4-4 ABA song and, uh, and, and sort of in some ways set the tone for the for the body of work that we later now call the golden age of standards. But it, but it was, you know, it, it, it is a recognizable body of work. I mean, the, the only question is, is it still being created? And, you know, have we, have we somehow lost the art of that? I, I uh, assume we'll get into that question a little bit later. We will get into that question. Um, and Tracy, I mean, another thing that's happening uh, during roughly this time is that three things are overlapping in a way that they don't overlap now. The most popular music in America, that's the first thing, is also the music of American movies. Uh, that's the second thing. And also the music of American Broadway theater, right? I mean, today, you know, every once in a while you have Adina Men- uh, Menzel busting out with something from an animated movie. But, but at that time, all of those things were essentially the same things. Absolutely. And I think there's a division that comes later. Um, Ben, in his book, he, he makes a good point about how in this time that we're talking about was um, every house had a piano in it and, you know, everyone sang and then we had radio, then we had TV, and now we have all of our individual devices. But, um, yeah, there was kind of a conflation of those things and um, then a separation later on when we get into the 50s and the rock and roll era, which Ben talks about in his book. Um, let's just sort of give a couple of examples of this, and these are uh, cited, I think, in Ben's book. Um, or one of them is, and one of them isn't, I think. Um, so here's um, Dana Lauren, who's a s- singer from Connecticut, and she's somewhere between a half to a third the age of any of us uh, on the show today, uh, singing There's a Small Hotel, which is an example of something coming out of a Broadway musical. 
There's a small hotel with a wishing well. I wish that we were there together. There's a bridal suite, one room, bright and neat, complete for us to share together. Through that little window, I can see a distant steeple. Not a lot of people who need its people. So, Ben Yagoda, this is also an example of what we would call a standard. And this is something you try to explore in the book. What does that term mean? You ask musicians and composers. What does something have to be to be a standard? I, I think most of us would concede that there's a small hotel as a standard. It belongs somewhere in the American songbook. But what does all that mean? What are the criteria? Well, it's it's definitely subjective, but one big part of it is what we just heard was an example of a the performance. I'm, I would guess sometime in the past ten years or so, um, reinterpret songs that could stand up to reinterpretation by singers, uh, jazz musicians. Um, you know, if you look at any concert or CD that Tony Bennett has put out in the last oh I don't know forty years, uh, they. Uh, consist of songs taken from that so-called Great American Songbook. Of the, the the contents depend on who's defining it, but somewhere between three, four, five hundred um, songs. W- one thing I'll add to what you guys were saying about um, Hollywood and Broadway. There was really a, in this period, which I would say from and the current song they didn't believe me I believe it was 1914 as a precursor but it really got into into play in the early 20s through the late 40s maybe early 50s um it was a three-legged stool uh, i i took a one list of of standards and from that period and divided them up and almost exactly one third came from broadway one third came from hollywood and one third came from so-called tin pan alley the, the 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 commercial music business where songwriters were cleffers as variety called them were pounding out songs and trying to sell them to band leaders uh, Benny Goodman or vocalists like Bing Crosby so all those three things and and each of them had a different kind of character but all of them were capable of creating great lasting songs um, just as 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 all the guests have said there was a confluence of things and and I would definitely point to the importance of jazz, not only as an influence on composers like Gershwin, Arlen, Porter, etc., but also um, songs that were reinterpreted by jazz musicians, um, Body and Soul by Coleman Hawkins, etc., etc., etc. These songs had the quality that they could be interpreted again and again creatively and uh, in new ways. You know, uh, Steve, one thing that I think you and I and some of the work that we've done in the past have also discovered is that so there's a certain point, And I think uh, in the book, uh, Ben maybe even cites, a, I don't know whether it's a letter or something from Harold Arlen, just talking about how everybody's in Hollywood. And, you know, everybody, all the songwriters are in Hollywood, although not all of them were happy in Hollywood. And I mean, it was a great place to work and make money uh, and get to get your songs heard. I think Kern in particular, a number of them chafed at being out there. This was essentially, as Ben says in his book, a New York phenomenon, except suddenly you had to be out by the pool uh, getting this movie music ready. And while you're composing your reaction to that, let's, <laughs> just, let's just give an example to, uh, of, uh, of uh, a song that, that people would have discovered through a movie. This is, isn't this a lovely ba- day? I think it's one of the three uh, hits that Ben cites that came out of the, music, the musical movie Top Hat. The weather is frightening, the thunder and lightning seem to be having their way. 
But as far as I'm concerned, it's a lovely day. The turn in the weather will keep us together, so I can honestly say that as far as I'm concerned, it's a lovely day. I mean, there was a sense, I mean, I think it's even in the Arthur Schwartz uh, scene that Ben has, that, I mean, that musical theater is like the really dignified place to be, to be creating your beautiful music. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, for one thing, um, a lot of those Hollywood musicals were actually remakes of Broadway shows. They weren't necessarily, you know, original mm-hmm. to, to Hollywood. Uh, I think I think uh, Irving Berlin, who wrote that song, actually had, had a better experience in Hollywood than most of his, most of his colleagues did. Um, and, and I'm not quite sure why that is, other than the fact that I'm not sure there were all that many great original movie musicals, even in the, even in the, like the MGM heyday. But, but it's true that, that the Broadway stage, and I think you'd agree with this, Tracy, uh, w- was really the, you know, the sort of petri dish for, for uh, developing and creating m- most of those songs, certainly, certainly more than Hollywood. They, they may have chafed Actually, because they were sitting by the pool uh, too much, but um. and not down at the deli. Yeah, um, I, you know, Ben yeah. talked about those those um, things coming one third here, one third here. But um, as Steve says, a lot of the writers that were in Hollywood came from New York. They came from the theater, so it'd be interesting to see of those two thirds. Maybe that's really the same people, just duplicated on both lists. Mm. So Ben yeah, is absolutely yeah. yeah. Ben is part of the question here also. Why, given what all this was, I mean, obviously at a certain point people started dying, and Gershwin obviously died very young, um, but there were people coming along to step into their shoes, uh, you know, other talented writers and lyricists. Um, so th- part of the question is, why didn't this wave just sort of keep going? In other words, why, why in the 50s and 60s weren't there just sort of things that represented refinements and, and subtle mutations of the kind of music that we're talking about now? Well, there was, and what happened in the um, in the fifties and into the early sixties was it all got concentrated on Broadway. Uh, Hollywood stopped making uh, musicals pretty much completely, with a few exceptions: Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and a few others. But but pretty much stopped. They were too expensive for what they they brought forward, and the Tin Pan Alley part of the equation. Uh, got into, as the term you use, novelty numbers, and later on, uh, in, in the mid-50s and beyond, rock and roll. That was where the Brill Building was concentrating on. So so the, the so-called quality end of pop music was pretty much confined to Broadway. And, and you see in the 50s, of course, uh, uh, starting with Guys and Dolls and, and, and then The Pajama Game and, and My Fair Lady, West Side Story, just, you know, wonderful uh, music. And, and, of course, from Oklahoma on in the 40s on Broadway, uh, music and lyrics and book and character were all integrated, which made for great shows, not necessarily always as many great standalone songs. The uh, We're going to go out of this segment uh, with, um, you know, you heard that somewhat wooden version of this Arthur Schwartz song, and really kind of the pivotal moment in Ben's book, I think that's almost fair to say anyway, is this little showdown between Arthur Schwartz, who really is sort of one of the torchbearers for this incredible tradition of the American songbook, and Mitch Miller, who's one of the gatekeepers for getting into to, you know heavy rotation or being released by Columbia Records and having a shot at making some serious money. Uh, and Arthur Schwartz doesn't want to change this song, and he 
resents the this bearded vulgarian telling him you know what's good music or what's viable music and stuff like that and, and so he sticks to his guns and so you hear that thing and the show ran about seven months and the song doesn't sound all that great although in fairness to Arthur Schwartz uh, I want to play the Andy Bay version of this uh, as we go out here because I listened to it for the first time today I didn't know this song and my I don't know what it'll do to you but my heart was on the floor more love than your love I'll never So we're talking about the book, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song by Ben Yagoda. He's joining us from WHYY in Philadelphia in the studio with me. We have Steve Metcalf, who's kind of our go-to guy about music. Not kind of. He is our go-to guy about music. And Tracy Moore, a singer uh, and a teacher uh, and somebody with a, a big background in musical theater. So, uh, you know, just to be as destructive and mean and horrible as possible— <laughs> Uh, so having just played this exquisite, emotive Andy Bay thing, and just get on YouTube and it just listen to the whole thing. It's incredible. But um, having played that, so the, the, the kind of song that Ben is talking about that suddenly had this vogue uh, in, in sort of post-war America in the 1950s. I mean, if there's one song that kind of symbolizes uh, that... And <laughs> I'd like to point out that it's actually a fairly catchy song. Uh, Metcalf was whistling it out in the lobby. Uh, here it is. How much is that doggy in the window? How much is that doggy in the window? The one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that doggy's for sale. All right, that's enough. Uh, so... Ben Yagoda, one of the points that you make that I think is a really interesting one is um, that there's a lot of things going on in the 1950s that do have to end have to do with the end uh, of World War II. There's first of all during World War II, there's not so much of the big band dance band stuff because there's nobody to dance with, and then at the end they come back and I think it's, it's Johnny Mandel, the songwriter and former big band trombonist who says, you know, the jitterbuggers didn't come back. They got married. They settled down. They wanted a different kind of life. And, and I would add, and their nerves were kind of frayed at this point, too. You know, they'd been through a world war. They'd been through the, you know, the first atomic detonations. They, in some ways, it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't want something powerful and emotive, that in some ways they would be attracted to, you know, just paper-thin music like this. I mean, is that part of your, your understanding? I, I totally agree. It, 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 they wanted more comforting stuff, comfort food. I mean, and, and talking about that, that song, uh, How Much the Dog in the Window, again, written by Bob Merrill, um, who has sometimes been dubbed the, the worst 
popular songwriter, and he, and he was popular uh, in American history. Um, That's a very you know, competitive, I, 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 competitive category. I, yeah, <laughs> it is. I do uh, presentations, and when I st- uh, based on the book, when I started out, I would, I would play a clip from that song as an example of how bad things were, crummy and, and all that. And a smile went on everyone's face. They started <laughs> singing along and had just a great time. And it made me realize that the, the music of that period, as you know, sometimes reviled and certainly dismissed as it is, ha- had some things going for it. Um, you know, Patti Page, who sang Dog in the Window, also had a huge hit with Tennessee Waltz, which is a very touching song. Um, and, and folk music was coming in. Uh, uh, the Weavers had a number one hit with with Goodnight Irene by Lead Belly. So a, a lot of interesting material was coming forward that the Great American Songbook, these New York guys and New York LA guys and gal, Dorothy Fields, as great as they were, um, kind of kept a lot of the other stuff from being heard, and, and all of a sudden it was being heard in this period. Well, and Steve, one of the uh, arguments that Ben makes, too, is that somehow or other that whole world of songwriting, um, American songbook songwriting, I mean, that wasn't a term that came along until till later, but Tin Pan Alley songwriting, the kind of songwriting that had dominated the 20s and 30s and 40s, was kind of walled off from a lot of other influences, not just the black music that would make the foundation of rock and roll, but even country music. So so that, that in a way, what was happening was that some of those songwriters were kind of unaware of the stuff that Ben is just citing of, you know, of just how powerful country music and, and other kinds of American roots music might come to be. Absolutely, and and he just cites Lead Belly and and Goodnight Irene, but at the same time, you know Hank Williams, although sometimes in in rather blandified versions, uh, was coming to the attention of of mainstream listeners. You know, I, I the the more I think about this, and <laughs> for better or for worse, I seem to think about it a lot. You know, I realize that uh, it 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 had to it had to change. I mean, the the sort of social forces that you mentioned and that Ben mentioned were certainly a part of that, and Mitch Miller himself is is a sort of chapter all all to his own. But at the same time, I I don't think it's realistic that the sound world and the way those those golden age songs were constructed could could go on forever. In other words, the the songs uh, of the fifties and the post war era, and then on and on into the sixties and seventies, were simply not going to sound like songs written in the thirties and forties. It just isn't the way. Music works. It's not the way culture works. There, there was going to be a, a an evolution, as indeed there was, and the early fifties may indeed have represented a kind of kind of an odd little transitional moment, which which was later kind of overtaken by rock and roll. But but I think in the in the broader view, as we now have a half a century to look back, we we see that it is it is just part of an ongoing process that you you aren't going to have the same sound world that you had in the 30s and 40s be the one that, that exists decades and decades later. I mean, you know, Stravinsky doesn't sound like Mendelssohn and, and you know, Bachrock doesn't sound like Kern. So, I mean, that, that is the nature of music. Um, Tracy, actually, another thing that's happening that you pointed out during the break is there is a little bit of a time delay. I mean, Cognoscenti are experiencing things uh, maybe in the 40s that the vast 
uh, prairie of America isn't experiencing, that, that the introduction of a lot of this Rodgers and Hammerstein music and other associated music really does come in the 50s as, as deep as the valley is that might be represented by how much the, is that doggy in the window. There's other stuff going on up on the big screen, right? Right. And, you know, the format of those shows like Carousel in Oklahoma, the, the, that, that kind of became the template for the, the musical theater that um, followed. Um, there are historians who argue that the golden age of musicals isn't really the 40s when those things were being written, but later on in the 50s when the movies, uh, as you say, became available to the wider public. I do want to say, I think that the kinds of songs like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, I think that kind of song has always existed. You know, one of Irving Berlin's earliest songs was a, a tune called Marie from Sunny Italy that was basically a spoof using dialect, and there was a lot of that stuff. And if you, you know, you songs like If You Don't Want My Peaches, Don't Shake My Tree, and all of the stuff that Mae West did and Sophie Tucker, I mean, those kinds of, um, some of them one-joke songs or, you know, uh, uh um, lighter fare, shall we say. I think those have been around for a while. Yeah, well, I mean, Harry Warren wrote 20 of the really greatest songs, you know, in the American songbook. He also wrote probably 300 of the worst, most dismissible songs of the kind that you're talking about. So, yeah, the the de minimis song <laughs> didn't start in the 1950s. Well, well I think the, yeah, go uh, ahead. The, the rule has been attributed to Kilgore Trout which is 90% of anything is junk. And he didn't use the word junk. He used another word. So, you know, as that shift begins, Ben, we're going to push forward a little bit. There's sort of two ways to look at kind of what came after that period in the 1950s. Uh, The onset of rock and roll, not just rock and roll, though, but also just a different kind of popular music. And as Steve says, you know, it's just it's inevitable that things change, that sounds change, aesthetics and sensibilities change. But there's two ways that the, the the subsequent era have tend to be understood. One of them is as a complete rejection as, of everything that came before. That rock and roll essentially threw off, you know, the 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 emphasis on craft, the kinds of things that a person familiar with jazz standards or American standards might cite as the basis for songwriting. And then there's the, another argument, which is to say, say no, an awful lot of what came was just a new generation of people trying to do more or less the same thing. And this is something I think you sort of explore both ideas in the book. Right. Well, I'm kind of partial to the latter idea. I mean, uh, the the Beatles were famously fans uh, of all popular music, especially all American popular music. I just happened to see a concert by J.D. Souther, who was associated with the uh, the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt and a bunch of others, and got to talking to him. He's written some great songs like uh, Desperado and New Kid in Town. And he grew up listening to Gershwin and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. And, and a lot of the songwriters, um, more recent ones I've talked to, Jimmy Webb, um, are total fans of, of that earlier period. I mean, to me, the, the, the key and the change, and you're absolutely right that, that things change, you could never stay the same, that would be kind of terrible, is that that earlier Great American Songbook was jazz-inflected um, for reasons we've discussed. Um, after the war, uh, not only, as you mentioned, was it tough for the big mans to get uh, funded, uh, to, to get uh, uh, personnel and a, a lack of interest, and many of them broke up in 45 and 46. But the the interesting part of jazz became bebop and more experimental sounds and great stuff, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. 
but wasn't song-oriented um, as the earlier stuff was. And in that earlier period, there was a unity. Uh, I mean, ho- the whole family liked popular music. Uh, jazz played, jazz artists played the best songs and, and the best songs were written for jazz. Um, after the war, all that stuff kind of splintered and there became a youth audience, a grown-up audience, modern jazz. Um, there just wasn't that same kind of unity and it couldn't be put back together again. You know, um, that one of the songwriters that you just mentioned, and I think there are like a whole bunch of songwriters uh, as as you uh, were saying, and as Steve and I were saying last night, I mean, we know that Paul McCartney is just you know an encyclopedic lover uh, of that of the music that came before him. But there were a whole bunch of songwriters like Jimmy Webb and and uh, Randy Newman and, and and Harry Nilsson, God knows, and people like that who just clearly just saw themselves as extensions of the Tin Pan Alley tradition that came before them. And I think some of them have produced songs that that I do feel as though can endure and acquire the status of standards, uh, at least to a certain degree. And so we're going to play uh, one of them right now. This is by Jimmy Webb, whose wife sometimes works here in the building. I don't think it's ever been possible to get Jimmy to listen to the show, but who knows? He might be listening right now. So here's uh, somebody else's version of something I think is kind of almost a standard right now, Wichita Lineman. Lineman's a lineman for the county And he drives the main road Always searching in the sun For another road alone I hear him singing through the wires So Steve Metcalf you're sitting there nodding. Um, that song does have a kind of strength, and a lot of people have covered it. There's another jazz singer, Shannon Butcher, who really specializes. Check out Sh- uh, Shannon Butcher after this show, by the way, but who specializes in, in doing this kind of thing and does a, another beautiful version of it. What, what makes that song strong? And if it's any kind of extension of the songwriting craft that Ben's writing about, how, how is that? How can you put that into words? Well, I mean, first of all, technically and musically, uh, just in terms of the of the chordal and harmonic structure, it's every bit as sophisticated as anything Cole Porter ever wrote or or Dick Rogers ever wrote. I mean, I think it's uh, it. In fact, it's a really good example for what we're talking about because it it has a modern sound. It has a kind of a, if you will, a sort of a contemporary theme to ex- its text. But like a lot of Jimmy Webb tunes, uh, it it really is you know respectful. I think of the way. The craft of songwriting has to work, and 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 that's obviously one of the reasons he he gets to take his place as as one of the people who have continued the tradition. I actually tried to think last night of, uh, you know, like Michael Feinstein said not too long ago that you know we don't know until maybe a generation or so has passed what the songs are that are going to turn out to be the new standards, but we do know that eventually they reveal themselves, and uh, you know, and I think we now have enough time that we can call Alfie a standard. We can call uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water certainly a standard or God Only Knows, uh, a, a song that I've, as you know, have taken a sort of a recent uh, reappraisal of uh, Alone Again Naturally, I think is is a song that holds up against anybody's work in the golden age. So, you know, I, I, I just think, I don't think it's even a controversial point anymore, but I mean, I think the idea that that standards somehow ceased to be written in 1951 or whatever 
is by now demonstrably false. We just don't know what the ones from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s are going to be yet because it, it takes a while for that to sort of percolate up to the you know, cultural surface somehow. Tracy, what were you going to say? Well, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about, you know, the question of standards and, and what lasts and what doesn't ever since, you know, I was asked to be on the show. And um, I find it interesting that of the couple that we've listened to, the Wichita linemen and the More Love Than Your Love, and, and I noticed this is true that um, a number of these older songs succeed when when they're able to be slowed down and something about the rhythm of the original locks us into a time um, and forces us to sort of deliver the song in a certain way that may be culturally constrained. When you pull it slower and it becomes more rubato, obviously it's more open for interpretation, but I think that it's also that loss of rhythm somehow enables us to get a more timeless sense of the piece. I know that happened uh, with Gershwin as well. Uh, Love is Here to Stay and many of the other songs started out as as kind of more mid-temper or upbeat songs and became known uh, as as great, great songs when when singers slowed them down. All right. We're going to take a little break uh, so we'll have time for our final segment here. Um, We're going to go out. This is just mainly to annoy Metcalf because I like Alec Wilder. Uh, a lot better than he does, and Ben does a uh, treat of Alec Wilder a lot in the book. And this is just a this song I think was written like in '76 or something. When did Alec Wilder die? Like you know, I think this song was written in '76. This is an example of a song of Alec Wilder kind of carrying this craft forward. Uh, and Hillary Cole's version of this is uh, the one that that well, she just owns this song. It's called Blackberry Winter. Blackberry Winter comes without a warning just when you think that spring's around to stay so you wake up on a cold rainy morning and wonder what on earth became of me Yes, sir. Are you still there? Okay, can you hold for another minute? Thank you, sir. Wow, that Wichita lineman is still on the line. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Deborah Timms, Katie McAuliffe, and Jules Lefebvre. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eddie Fisher. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff performing You're Not the Only Oyster in the Stew, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose revels in its own diversity. And now, back to Colin. All right, and back to the B-side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. That's a book by Ben Yagoda. He's joining us today from WHYY in Philadelphia. With us in the studio are Tracy Moore and Steve Metcalf. And um, by the way, I mean, we're live here in the afternoon if you want to put in your two cents. I mean, we're running a little low on time, but the number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You know, Ben, uh, one of the quotes that kind of jumped out at me in uh, your book, and I'm going to apply it to a more contemporary thing, for some reason or other, Johnny Mandel, all your Johnny Mandel stuff kind of got to me. So he describes at one point being a kid, I think, and listening to big band music on the radio, just like everybody was listening to big band music on the radio. And at a certain point, he said to himself, it's not just the songs. It's how they're played, right? I mean, we talk about these songs as though they have this kind of immutable status as, uh, as notation uh, on a page. 
but songs aren't just that, right? They're song. They're done a certain way, uh, and, and they're performed by certain performers. Uh, and and I wonder whether that can delude us a little bit about you know whether or not there are these really definable periods in the exact in the actual writing and existence of songs. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's certainly true, though. The point that, that Johnny Mandel was making is uh, ha- has to do with the arrangers, which is what he ended up going into at, at, at in his first part of his career. And, you know, that that was just, to go back to that word confluence, that uh, which I kind of like that word, um, was used at the beginning of the conversation. That was just another one of the things that was going on. I mean, Nelson Riddle, who came to glory later on, started as an arranger in the big band period. And, and all these incredibly talented people, um, just as you said, uh, interpreting the songs. But but the the material was, the song itself was essential and important, as was the performance, as was the arrangement, as was, you know, as was the dancing to it. A, a lot of these songs were performed and written to be danced to. Um, some people have argued that the foxtrot was one of the key uh, elements in forming the Great American Songbook. So just so much was going on. Okay, I'm going to do a little parlor trick song here, a parlor trick arrangement here that sort of illustrates that point about sort of how, how songs are done and illustrates Tracy's point, too, about what happens when you slow songs down. Chestnuts in blossom Holiday tables Under the trees So, Tracy Moore, there's your point again about slowing a song down. So we've taken a song by, it's, it's Vernon Duke, right? That's who wrote April in Paris, I think. And, and then smashed onto it a Joni Mitchell song. Although if you didn't know, if you had no information to go on, I think you'd think you're, singing, you're hearing the same song, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it isn't just slowing it down. The song has to be able to withstand that kind of mm-hmm. extension, like, you know all about that bass. I don't know that you could make anything of that even if you slowed it way, way down. So uh, the song has to hold up harmonically and lyrically, and those do. Okay, now you make Plus the familiarity that we, we, we know the song, and it's, it's, it's cool to hear it in this very different way. Um, part of it has to do with our knowing the song. It's all about that bass. <laughs> no trouble. I oh, know you're right. It doesn't really <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, um, Ben, I'm interested to know, you know, Steve rattled off a, a group of songs uh, from sort of the post-American songbook, theoretically kind of rock and roll dominated era that he thinks either are standards or will be standards. He's a little bit crazy about Gilbert O'Sullivan these days, but, you know, he goes through these <laughs> phases. Um, and um, I'm wondering for you, you know, what do you think uh, has that kind of status or will have that kind of status? You, you know, it, it is so subjective, and after I did the book, as, as kind of my own little parlor game, I started a, a blog called 
org, where I put up nominations. And um, it's uh, so far there's only about 15, 16 songs on there. But um, a name that hasn't been mentioned is Paul Simon. Mm-hmm. who is totally in that tradition of the Jewish New York <laughs> great American songwriter, um, started out as kind of a folky, but broadened out as, as his career. And, and, you know, one of his early songs I have on there, America, which is um, brilliant lyrics, almost like a short story, uh, and, and a number of other of his songs. Um, uh, Randy Newman, you mentioned, uh, you know, the song of his Baltimore that's been played a lot, unfortunately, because of current events, reminds me of how well that song stands up. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a lot. I, I think in in the more recent songs, it, it probably is a little bit more subjective than that great American songbook, which there's a fairly good consensus on. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but I think the as many people as you talk to about newer songs that'll last, you'll get maybe that many answers. I think you do get a lot of coalescence or coalescing around Paul Simon. You and I were talking about this on the phone last night, Steve. But in fact, he names America. You named uh, well. I named Bridge Over Troubled Water, but 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 my God, you could name any of thirty of Paul Simon songs. I, I, I do want to say one thing in that connection, both because I think it applies to what. Tracy correctly said about slowing things down, but it also it also uh, I think is illustrated by the by the April in Paris, Freeman in Paris mashup here, and that is that you know one of the ways in which contemporary songs can be great, but but hard to recognize and and to kind of think about as standards is that they're not always so doable by uh, you know a guy on a piano in the corner of a of a lounge somewhere. Um, and, and I think we tend to associate standards with songs that can be done that way and have always been done that way. But, you know, a lot of Paul Simon stuff, I mean, even America, for example, Ben, would be a hard song for a, you know, a lounge piano player to, to pull off convincingly. And certainly any of his stuff from Graceland or Rhythm of the Saints or, or some of the stuff that partakes of non-Western music would be virtually impossible. So, so on the one hand, they are great, great pieces of songwriting. On the other hand, they don't lend themselves to sort of the, uh, you know, cabaret treatment that that we associate with Stardust or Two Sleepy People. Yeah, I, I think you're right about the, the guy on the piano. But I did – I started thinking about America when I saw this uh, Swedish folk female duo whose name escapes me perform it on one of David Letterman's last shows and just did a knockout interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. So – different sorts of and, – and the Tierney Sutton on Joni Mitchell, and, and of course Joni Mitchell's name belongs with near the top or at the top of any list of of great contemporary songwriters. Amen. So You know, yeah. Tracy Moore, I've got exactly two and a half minutes left, so I'm going to no open up a huge yeah. uh, can of worms <laughs> here and say, you know, the other thing, you know, we t- started talking about the, the role of Broadway in American theater. And, and, you know, I mean, it just seems as though the thing that's – that's discernible as a theater song is just more and more less and less recognizable. I just saw kinky boots, you know, it's got some nice songs in it, but I mean, they could be from anywhere. I mean, I, I just, I, is there going to be a thing that is a recognizable theater song or is it just going to be a different coloration of rock and pop music? Um, I think there is a contemporary musical theater song sound right now. It tends to be very wordy, um, the lyrics tend to be very literal. It tends to have a complicated 16th note piano accompaniment. So there, there, is a, there are a couple of little tags that you can 
um, find in in contemporary musical theater. It's not more exactly rhythmic. Boffo, though. Sorry. I said not exactly box office baffo uh, for a broad, wide audience. Right. That that doesn't tend yeah. to be what's commercially produced right now. Um, I I would argue that doesn't. We don't know whether it would be commercially successful or not because it's not getting the same kind of. Uh, new composers are not getting the same kind of play as the um, composers of the early 1900s who, you know, might produce 27 shows in their lifetime. People now are lucky to get one new composer. So that they're out there and they're writing, and if their stuff could be heard, I think we'd be able to have a better discussion about the future of American musical theater. I mean, it does seem as if you walk around Broadway of a night, it's, you know, there's some Elton John playing and some, maybe some Sting. And right, and, and even Kinky Boots is um, Sidney Lauper, yeah. right? You and know, the, the Last s- Ship was Sting. I yeah. mean, there, yeah. Well, we're going to have to pause it there. I wish we could uh, solve all of the problems of the world, but uh, or the musical world, but we began anyway. We caused problems. That's a that's a good start. Uh, the book we've been talking about is The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Ben Yagoda has been joining us. It's been a privilege to have him on. I've been a longtime fan of not only this work, but his work about words and usage and stuff like that. Uh, Steve Metcalf, of course, is, uh, well, he writes the weekly Metcalf on Music blog for WNPR.org, does many other things as well. Make sure you find out about the Richard P. Garmany Chamber Music Series at the Hart School. Tracy Moore, actress, singer, teacher, associate professor of theater at Hart. We're going to end with one of those more theatrical songs, uh, one that I think uh, some of us think really works and sounds like it belongs somehow or other to that tradition, you know, that could have been almost in a Gershwin or a Cole Porter musical. Uh, It's by Jason Robert Brown, who's been working at Chester right now at Norma Terrace, uh, and it's called Summer in Ohio. I could wander Paris after dark, take a carriage ride through Central Park, but it wouldn't be as nice as a summer in Ohio, where I'm sharing a room with a former stripper and her snake, Wayne. Okay, how about a song called Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is caused by the refraction and dispersion of the sun's light by water droplets in the atmosphere, huh? Eh, too vague. <laughs> 